welcome to the Intentional Parents Podcast Season 2. Intentional exists to help parents in their God-given task to raise passionate Jesus followers. We exist to bring hope, help, and healing to families. Each week, we will talk about anything from parenting, marriage, lifestyle, and what it looks like to follow Jesus in our time. Intentional is made up of Phil and Diane Comer and Brooke and Elizabeth Moser. I am Brooke, and the funny thing is, we are all family. Elizabeth is Phil and Diane's daughter, so we're a family figuring this thing out together. We hope this podcast feels like you're sitting with us in our home talking about how to do this thing called life together. Elizabeth and I are your hosts. Let's get into this week's podcast. We already have a Kleenex box in the middle of the table mm-hmm. uh, because today uh, we just want to share some of our life with you all. And, you know, parenting is a really beautiful thing and it's also one of the most challenging things. Uh, it can bring such incredible joys and also such incredible sorrow all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so today we want to just take a moment and share some of our life and some moments it might be. There might be a lot of tears, so we just warn you of that, but mm-hmm. we also uh, want to be honest about this because we've seen God move in such incredible, specific ways through moments of suffering that are really hard. And to start us off today, Phil had a, a verse he wanted to share, and uh, take us away. Well, you know, uh, this whole ministry is about raising kids who grow up to become passionate Jesus followers. And and uh, when when anyone chooses to follow Jesus, you know, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, hey, I've given my life to the Lord. And so just everything's going to be smooth sailing and joy. And one day I'm going to be with him forever. And and uh, sometimes we can miss out the reality that life is hard at times. And uh, it, it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus himself said, in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble or tribulation, not you may have, you will have. But then he said, but take courage. I've overcome the world. So there's nothing that we ever go through that he doesn't fully understand and he's with us. And of course, James chapter one, one of our uh, our four kids, Matthew, has this tattooed on his arm. It's his life verse because he's been through a uh, a, a trial of his own. Uh, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. There it is again, when, not if, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. It may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so uh, I'm old enough now. I just had my 69th birthday. Yes. And, and although I don't <laughs> think I know a lot about suffering, I'm married to my wife who's been through it and my a son who has, and as a pastor, I've been around a lot of people who have suffered. And what I've learned is none of us get out of life unscathed. Mm-hmm. There are things that happen and it's not heaven until heaven. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a beautiful story that that I want to turn the table on you. You're the host of the podcast. So I want to invite you, Brooke and Elizabeth, to share mm-hmm. your story uh, about your little girl, Birdie, who's our sixth of seven grandchildren and how her story has um, impacted you, but also our entire family. So. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. Well, I think Mama Bear needs to start. I think <laughs> she's uh, felt the brunt of all this. So why don't you start? Basically, he wants me to cry first. <laughs> <laughs> I would prefer that. Yeah. Uh, but our third daughter, Birdie, who's now three and a half, um, we're coming up on three years. Three years ago, 
Um, I took her to the urgent care because I thought she had an ear infection. See, I'm already crying. Um, and I just kind of had this sense. I think she needs to get checked out. It was a weekend. So the doctor, um, doctor's office was closed and I'm not looking at you, mom, cause you're already crying. You're going to make me keep crying. Um, and took her to the urgent care just to have her ears checked. And kind of two weeks prior to this, um, one morning, Brooke was actually feeding her a bottle early. And she kind of started doing this kind of odd movement. It didn't look like anything really alarming. She just would kind of raise her arms over her head and kind of like a rhythmic pattern for a couple of seconds. And then it would stop. And she would do it once a day. And then it had started to become a little bit more frequent. And sometimes it was a couple times a day, enough that I had thought, I need to mention this to a pediatrician. But never in my mind was I thinking something serious. I just thought it was kind of this weird involuntary movement. And so I take her to the urgent care. And right as the doctor walked in and is examining her, she did this kind of odd movement. So I pointed it out and I said, hey, this is kind of weird. We have an appointment next week with her pediatrician. But do you have any idea what this is? And the doctor kind of got quiet and finished examining her, looked in her ears, didn't really say anything, and said, I'll be right back. So she quickly left the room, and I just knew, like just I think us moms just have that intuition, and I just knew something was wrong. And I waited what felt like forever, late at night, and she was fussy and ready to go home. And I just was sitting there alone in the room and holding Birdie, and I just felt like like I could hear this audible voice just like felt like it was right behind me into my ear. I just felt God say, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I, I said, okay. We're taking a cry pause real quick. <laughs> yeah, take a minute. It's okay. I said, okay, I don't know what you're with me for, but I know you're with me. And a few minutes later, the doctor came back in. She said, I don't want to alarm you. But that movement is alarming. <laughs> um, she said, I called ahead to the hospital and they're waiting for you. You need to take her to the emergency room. And so I took her. I called Brooke, said, hey, I'm going to the emergency room. I don't know what's going on, but they said this movement's concerning. So we get her checked in. The doctors are all kind of confused. I don't have a video of it. I hadn't thought to take a video. But they had us just waiting there. My sister actually happened to be in town. She came over to watch our two older kids so Brooke could meet me at the hospital. At this point, it's like midnight. midnight yeah. And um, she happened to have another one of these episodes of movements. So the doctors saw it and they said, okay, we're admitting you. And the pediatrician on call said, I remember reading about a rare form of epilepsy that I think looks like this, but I'm not totally sure. Like you'll talk to doctors tomorrow. They'll just get you admitted tonight. We want to watch her. So they admitted us, and then the next day, this was all on a weekend, so the next day on a Sunday, they do what's called an EEG, which is just a bunch of wires all over her head um, for a period of time, and they said she'll probably wear it for like three to five days. We'll collect all this data, see the brain activity that's going on, and maybe get a better picture of what's going on. So they hook her up to that, and I mean, not even a half hour later, um, the on-call doctor comes in, and he's... <laughs> acting quite awkward. Yeah, you can tell he, and, hadn't, he hadn't done this before. Yeah. He was new and he was very uh, unsure. And he was trying to tell us really serious news, but I think he was trying to be so positive we didn't really understand. <laughs> how he was really kind, but he just came in yeah. and said, we know what is going on. Your daughter has a really rare form of epilepsy called infantile spasms. 
and I don't know a lot about it, but the neurologist will be here first thing tomorrow morning and can tell you more. And we, we can unhook her from the EEG, but she needs to stay admitted to the hospital. We need to monitor all of – she's actually having seizures. We need to monitor all of this. So kind of gave us some instructions on counting them and timing them and recording how many she was having. And so we're just kind of listening to this. And I, my first thought was, oh, I'm relieved. There's a clear diagnosis. Like, all right, there'll be a plan. And my sister actually was in healthcare for a long time. And she was in the room when he came in and she starts researching what this actually is. And he left. And a few minutes later, she said, you know, guys, this is really not good. And she kind of explained to us a little more. We didn't fully understand. And then I started doing what every mom does that every doctor says not to. I started Googling. And actually, the middle of the night, I was there uh, with Birdie. Brooke had gone home to our two older kids. And it just started to sink in, oh, this is this is really bad. And so basically what infantile spasms is, is um, so when somebody has a seizure, it's a disruption in normal brain activity. And it usually is somewhat brief, and then their brain activity goes back to normal. And seizures themselves are actually not that dangerous. We, we think of seizures as like a big grand mal seizure where somebody's shaking on the ground. And what's happening to the brain at that time is actually not life-threatening. What's life-threatening is the fact that they're shaking and on the ground and can get hurt. But seizures themselves are not all that scary, although they might look scary. But this specific type of epilepsy is kind of like your brain having a constant seizure without a break ever. So when you actually looked at her EEG, it looked like a toddler had scribbled all over the screen, where it's normally like a very rhythmic, predictable pattern. Her brain activity was chaotic. They, her neurologist likened it to a bomb going off in her brain 24 hours a day. So the reason it's so catastrophic and so serious is because when that's happening, no brain can develop or grow or learn or function at all. So with this type of epilepsy, if you don't get the seizures to stop really quickly, then the kids end up completely brain dead and paralyzed and no chance of ever learning or growing past infancy. So there was a lot of, we spent a week in the hospital and just constant doctors and tests and MRIs and trying to get answers. And there are a couple um, forms of treatment and some are more effective than others. And there's one specific form that is the most intense and the most expensive, but the most effective. And we just saw God just go before us and fight for us and for Birdie. And we had this amazing neurologist who had actually treated one case before. So this is so rare that a lot of times doctors have only read about it and not treated it. So she had treated one case before and she just looked at all of Birdie's history and all of her tests and said, she needs this one form of treatment that your insurance is going to deny, but she has to have it and we're going to find a way to get them to say yes. But, then, basically, but then she said, and FYI, this insurance, this, uh, the cost of this medication is $185,000. Yep. Yep. And insurance denied it. <laughs> yeah, they did. Three times. Um, but she just kept going back to them and kept fighting for it. And we, Brooke was on the phone all day, every day with the insurance company. And we were trying to figure out how do we – because every day that went on was more and more potential brain damage. And you you really do have to stop them immediately for her to have any chance at normalcy. 
And so we're just day after day in the hospital trying to get insurance to cover this, trying to get it so the company could just, so there's one company that sells this drug, which is why it's so expensive, trying to get them just to ship it to us so we could start her on it. And it took about a week to get all of that. As we're learning more and more and reading more and more about the potential outcome of what her life could be. And the spectrum basically is from completely brain dead and in a wheelchair, worst case scenario, to best case scenario is some learning disabilities and struggles in school, some social and and um, emotional struggles, some sensory issues. That's like best case scenario. And, so, and anywhere in between, like you have no idea where they might fall on the spectrum. And it all kind of hinges on how fast can you get control of the seizures. We're processing all of this. And we eventually, our insurance company eventually um, accepted our claim and w- she was able to do um, this first round of ACTH, which the medication was called that. And it, um, she is honestly a total miracle in the fact that the first round of treatment worked. A lot of kids fail the first round and have to go on to more and more. Um, but the treatment was about three months long. Feel free to jump in at any yeah, time. Yeah, I feel, uh, yeah, the one thing that I, that was really scary that I, I feel, obviously you're sharing so many details. So one of the details that I, that sticks out so vividly to me was when, uh, our doctor was explaining the, the treatment, she said, listen, you've got two options. You know, the, the spectrum that you just shared in a wheelchair, potentially no brain activity, uh, or, you know, or we put her on this drug, which also could, uh, take her life. And primarily because it's such a high dose of steroids and other things that could basically stop her heart. Um, and you know, there was a lot of things, the side effects were her face swelled up like a balloon. She, the amount of steroids she was on, I mean, she, she was, we had to do shots day and night. Um, and we had to go to the hospital every day for three months to take her, um, to take her blood pressure to make sure that her heart was wasn't going to stop. Yeah, she was on blood pressure medication and her heart did hold up. But yeah, every day we'd go to the hospital. We got to know every single person that worked at that hospital, <laughs> yeah, I think. I remember. And yeah, before you go on with the story, uh, why don't you share how this affected you as a couple? Because a lot mm-hmm. of married couples, when they go through a trial of this magnitude, uh, some of them, frankly, don't don't even make it. I mean, yeah. how, how were how were you each reacting? Yeah. Uh, as I remember, you kind of reacted differently <laughs> to to yeah. to the approach when you were processing what could happen. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think now looking back, I think God was so gracious in allowing us to grieve at different times because mm-hmm. we do grieve differently. And I think Brooke, you really grieved really when we were in the hospital, like right totally. up front. Yep. Every time, every day he would come. I stayed there 24 hours a day, but he would go home to our older kids at night and he would get to the hospital and start crying. Oh, I was already crying in the car the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, all yeah. the fears and all the, yeah, it was in the moment. Cause I remember I would go home at night to have some normalcy for the kids. And this is when we lived across the street from you, Phil and Diane. Yeah. And you guys were so amazing to have the kids during the day Mm -hmm. and then at night we decided it would actually be a little bit more comforting for them if they had kind of their night routine it was just duke and scarlet at that point yeah um and driving to the hospital yeah it was a process for me every single morning yeah and i think i 
just jumped straight into I have to take care of her and I have to learn. I, I process emotion through information first. Um, so I had to be gathering all this information. And I think for me, I felt like there was a wall between me and grief because I didn't know what I was grieving yet. I didn't know if I was grieving the worst case scenario, the best case scenario, somewhere in between. I didn't, th- nobody could tell me anything about what her future looked like or the next year or two years or three years. And that, because of how I'm wired and my nature of like, I, it can be the worst case scenario. Just tell me so I can make a plan. <laughs> and um, there was no way to plan anything. There's no way to plan. And yeah. so I, I was very aware that I wasn't grieving. And I think in many ways, that was God's grace too, because I think if I had, I it would have been too messy to be able to to learn everything I needed to learn about how to not just be your mom, but now be her caretaker. Um, and I think that you know the the when you grieve, I remember you you were trying to figure out what to grieve. Yeah, and I remember grieving the massive uh, disappointment of having a little girl that was going to be really different. And I expected. And Elizabeth, I remember you um, using information almost as a buffer against grieving. And I recognize that in myself, too. It's almost like the more I know about it, the more control I have. In reality, you you have no control. I mean, no, not no control. The kind of caretaking that you gave her with such intensity and such intelligence paid off in so many ways. It's still paying off. So not no control, but still pretty much minimal control. And so you needed to explore worst case. Totally. Yeah. Whereas Brooke was was just decimated by worst case. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could see the clash that couples have. Both are very healthy ways of grieving. Yeah. But but very different, and you could see how you almost couldn't grieve together at no. first, oh, yeah. it, and it because have, it was almost destructive, even for the yeah. kids. You know, yeah. to, for me to be grieving, you know, I I think I think God's really gracious to help us, and I think there's I, I personally believe there's moments where where God's like, it's not your time to grieve. I'm going to give you extra grace for the sake mm-hmm. of your family and yeah. give this yeah. one permission. You know, because I think Elizabeth during the time of the hospital, I was a wreck. But she was a steady rock. I could not believe it. I was, she just became like, this is informational. I'm going to learn how to give the... I remember the the day that the kids mm. came into the hospital to visit Birdie, and they always love seeing her. And Elizabeth has an orange, <laughs> and she has... <laughs> and a uh, syringe. And a syringe. <laughs> and she's learning how to give proper shots on an orange, because that's the closest texture to human skin. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, she's practicing, and I'm just like watching my wife with strength sit in the space of of learning how to care for her. Talk talk to talk to us about how you were feeling with with the presence of God through all this. I mean, oh. I've seen people in a hardship like this actually get angry, blame God and turn away from him yeah. instead of running to him and it's you know, I I love that right out of the bat when you were going from urgent care over, you heard the voice of the Lord saying, I am with you. And yes. of course, Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus says, I oh, will I never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, you mm. can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will yes. not be afraid. Yes. What can man do to me? So, I mean, we know that's true. I mean, Jesus is saying, you have me, I'm there. 
And then he promises to be the God of all comfort in Second Corinthians, where he yeah. says, blessed be the God and Father of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Yeah. Did you feel that? And, and how, wow. e even in the crisis and the exhaustion of back and forth and all that, did, where, was, where was the Lord and, mm. and how did he help and wh where did you guys turn? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely, yes, we felt that. And I would say every time I prayed, I could just hear again, just louder and louder, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I never felt like he wasn't right there. And I think I quickly began to experience God in a way that I honestly never had to that magnitude before, where I felt like his presence was so palpable and so thick and I didn't know what to pray. I felt like I couldn't pray prayers of faith because I genuinely didn't feel like I had the faith to believe that God could heal her. Like I, I wanted to and I believed it, but I, I yeah. knew that like there was something holding me back from really believing that. Yeah. But I felt his presence just so much mm -hmm. with us and with me and um, in a way that there was just a depth to it and a thickness yeah. to it, I guess, is the is the only thing I can think of that it felt like, you know, Brooke has said before, almost like a privilege of going through suffering. Not yeah. like our daughter was privileged to have this. That's not at all what, I mean, I think that can be taken wrong, but <laughs> no. just this like this. It, to be entrusted with this level of suffering in a little one. You know, I think uh, I remember my prayer for Bertie was that God would make it count, yeah. that God would use her life and her story uh, to just help people recognize his power and goodness. And, and it would, it would just make it count. Like, you know, some, some of our lives we can get really gummed up in the fact that this is happening. Um, but because I had great parents who were able to give me a heads up that life is not all about the good moments or it's not always easy. It's not always that God can be trusted even in the hard moments. I, I feel like even though you're never ready when something like this happens, we felt totally ready. The foundation yeah. you gave Elizabeth, yes. the example that she had to see you, Diane, suffer, and then to see Matthew go through with, with type 1 diabetes, different different levels of suffering. She mm -hmm. was, I mean, in <laughs> with you without you knowing it, she was almost groomed for this. Like yeah. of anybody that could step into this with strength and handle it well. I think by by literally God's grace, we were put in a place where uh, we were given the, the 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 privilege. It was a privilege that I think God gave us to look at it and not to question His goodness, not to question His love for us, not to question if He wanted this to happen. We know that God did not want this to happen, uh, like you shared in James. It's it's the in this life we have troubles, and our troubles just look so yeah. different. Um, but what I've seen, and I don't know why this is true. I don't have the theology to back it currently, but I, those who I see go through a greater level of suffering, I see a greater power in the kingdom. I just see this, it's like almost the deeper level of suffering you experience, the more palpable, like the more uh, moldable you are. Mm -hmm. 
for God and his kingdom purposes. And, and maybe the more capacity for joy. Yeah. 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 You know, it's almost like I hear the two of you saying, I mean, nobody would ever ask for this. You'd no. be crazy to ask no. for it. <laughs> but because you didn't turn away from the Lord, but to him, you're almost saying it brought you closer to God. Oh, and, you know, absolutely. I, yeah. it made me think I just finished reading through Job, oh, you know, which I love reading. I love reading. <laughs> People call it depressing, but I love that book. But the yeah. last chapter when he finally yes. gets it, and then God just pours blessing on him at the end of the trial. He says in chapter 42, verse 5, I've heard of you, talking to God, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Hmm. And I feel like what I'm really hearing you say is that God was there. I'm not putting words in your mouth, no, but no, God he was, was yeah. there and we we felt his presence. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it, maritally, and the story is was more gruesome in some ways than I think any of us had anticipated because the kind of shots that Elizabeth was practicing on the orange yes, were not like um, thin insulin type no. shots. They were this long, thick needle. My first response when I saw it was, how will that not go all the way through her little thigh? And they had to teach it, me how to not know, have it hit not, the bone. And yeah. it had to be wide and thick because of the kind of medication that was, was really in thick. it to get yeah. it delivered. It had to be inserted slowly. Mm -hmm. And I watched my daughter pinning her daughter to the bed <laughs> yeah, it was a with group one hand. You you just, know, the first, I would distract her. Uh, yes. I would look at her eyes and say, it's yeah. okay. Yes. And mom would grab her leg. And, and I think the first time you it. couldn't come, she had me come over. Yes. And I'm yeah. watching this thinking, this, this is unbelievable. That she's having to, my daughter is having to hurt her daughter in order to bring her the medication that yeah, will heal her. her, hopefully will heal her or could kill her. Yeah. And, um, but the strength that God gave you and just the Elizabeth before this happened shuddered at the very thought <laughs> of having to make a hospital call with yeah. her pastor oh, husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just wanted out of there as fast as Mostly possible. Mostly because of the shots. I'm over that now. <laughs> and I remember, you know, Birdie just, I mean, she's my granddaughter. She's yeah. beautiful and joyful and giggling. And, and then this medication was so powerful in yeah. what it took to stop the seizures. Yeah. It was like she she went inside of a shell. Totally. It was like it's like, it was like we lost her. We lost. We did. Her. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. praying for her when we were in that period of being on this medication, knowing that there was not a great survival rate for the medication. I think I read at one time in one of the things that I was looking <laughs> <Yeah>. up googling, <laughs> <You were> googling. <laughs> that um, only about thirty percent of children, at least when this article was written make who have infantile spasms live to the age of three thinking oh my gosh that's this yeah. is this is just terrible and crying out to god and sensing that spirit because before this happened birdie sang all that time she yeah. was just one babbling singing yes. infant and the most connected yeah. of all of up to that time our six grandchildren the most connected like she try and grab yeah. your eyes and Stay connected with you, with you when you were just, even just walking by her. She mm -hmm. just wanted to be so connected, and then watching her disappear, really yeah. just like she wasn't there anymore, and crying out to God and saying, "We, the world needs to hear her voice." Yeah, yeah. and I still don't know what that's going to look like. I still don't mm -hmm. know what that means. Yeah, um, 
but just having the sense that 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 the spirit was telling me how to pray. Yeah. And also yeah. the desperate sense of a grandmother who loves her daughter, watching her daughter mm. and son suffer and watching the the other two kids suffer alongside and watching what Bertie was having to go through. Yeah. Yeah. How often do we cry out to God? And yet whenever we cry out, he's right he there. Is, yeah. You know, and I think we, we forget this at times. Yeah. We live in America and everything's provided and yeah, all that. And yet you read all through the Bible and he cried out to the Lord and she cried out to God and yeah. and God answered. And, and yeah. the times in my life, which haven't been all that many, honestly, Mm. Where I've cried out to the Lord, oh, are some of the times I will never forget. Yeah, where He is there, and yeah. it sounds like you experienced. That. Well, on the topic of prayer, you know, I remember we invited the elders uh, to come and pray. You guys remember mm-hmm. that? We you guys were there, were there. Mm-hmm. and then a bunch of elders from Bridgetown and um, and the church that we all started at Solid Rock and and Twenty Six West. Jose Zayas mm-hmm. and the crew, our all of our people were there, and. And I just remember it was so funny because all the nurses, uh, Bertie's door, Bertie's room was like right outside the nurses' station, mm-hmm. and there's usually about you know six or seven nurses on call at it, or working at any one time on the floor. And I remember they just started watching 20, <laughs> 20 or so people <laughs> cram into this tiny room, men and women of just insane faith, and the doors open because we couldn't not have it open, <laughs> and they all come in. And they all just start praying. And I mean, speaking in tongues, praying over deaf and dumb spirits, like, I mean, just literally releasing the kingdom of God onto this girl and just saying no to the enemy and, and for divine healing. And I, and it was a roar and no one was bashful. I remember (laughs) you were praying so loud. Like I was feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to these people afterwards. (laughs) Let them know we're normal. Yeah. Like I swear, like we just believe in a realm that you don't understand. It's the kingdom of God and it will change your life. But I remember uh, sitting in that space and, you know, to your point, Elizabeth, you said you didn't feel like you could even pray for healing. And I I so remember not feeling like I could even ask because like in that moment, and if you've experienced that and you're listening, you know exactly what we're talking about. You almost feel like you need someone else to come in and assist you and have faith for you and pray on your behalf because you just don't have it in that space. And um, to have that support, to have 20 of the finest people I could think of praying over our girl. And I, I literally believe there was healing that happened in that moment, things that were stopped, things the the trajectory of her life was changed in that space, wow. in that hospital you guys, with all the weird looks. You guys obeyed James 5. If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders, the elders of the church. church yes. They'll anoint with oil and pray. And I just think uh, people that might be listening that are going through a hardship, you know, medical doctors can help immensely, but God is the healer. They Amen. can do surgery. Yes. They can apply medicine, but God is the healer. And I'm so glad that we got to be part of that prayer session and yeah. and God answered. But sometimes God doesn't answer in the yes. way that we mm-hmm. hoped, the way yeah. that we prayed for, the way that we had faith for. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit now about, yes, it's a miracle that she's alive. Yeah. She wasn't part of the 70% yeah. perhaps who don't survive, but what about the answers that didn't turn out the way that you had hoped? Yeah. You know, I think, again, we see things in hindsight clearer. And I think those, the kind of, so she had the three months of treatment and then six months of uh, quarantine, basically, because her immune system was shut down by the medication. Oh, so yeah. 
the smallest of, you know, the common cold or chicken pox, something like that could have taken her life. So she couldn't leave the house unless she was going to the doctor. Nobody could come in the house except for our family. Our son had to strip down after going to school, wash up to his elbows, change his clothes. Yeah, in the garage. In the garage before he could come um, in. So it was an intense, like just major protection mode for six months. So we didn't see anybody. I mean, it was just kind of nuts. And that was all really, really hard. And I would say it felt really dark and really isolating. But I think I was expecting that, you know, I was planning for the worst, praying for the best, but I couldn't have foreseen, I think, how much harder, honestly, the long haul of the aftermath of all of the seizures and um, and just the different things going on in her brain have been a lot harder than I think I would have anticipated that they would have been. And what I kind of mean by that is, you know, after we had kind of the six months total of, of making sure these seizures were going to stop, because this specific type of epilepsy usually only happens between four months old and a year. It's, they don't really know why. It's just something that's happening as the brain is forming that is this window of time this can happen. But kids who've had it, even if you can get rid of it, tend to have a form of epilepsy the rest of their lives. And so for her, right, at her last week of treatment, the infantile spasms were gone, that type of seizure. But she started having different types of seizures that were way less severe. But still, you have to go on lots of medication, lots and lots of testing. So we kind of jumped straight into, you know, we got her through treatment and we were so thankful, but we were exhausted. And then we jumped straight into this whole other world of a different kind of epilepsy, which just brought a bunch of other unknowns of uh, how are we going to get control of these ones? And then this long process that we're still right in the midst of, of helping her develop and helping her learn, you know, at first it was really simple things like helping her learn how to sit up and develop the muscle strength to be able to do that, um, how Calling, to yeah. understand what we're saying. She has a delayed processing time. So that was really hard when she was first learning to talk. You had to learn to say things terrible. slower. Yeah. So it's been it these like so waves hard. of like all these chunks of different types of therapies and that got started to get progressively harder. And I, I hadn't, you know, I've never experienced that before. So yeah. I'd never been raising a toddler who had all of these extra things that made being a toddler a thousand times harder, which meant raising her becoming a lot harder. And so I would say that I have learned so much more even than in the intense couple months of treatment in the long haul of this and what it means to grieve. I think that was something that really took me by surprise. I think as a culture and as the church in general, I think we're really good at showing up in the moment and like meeting the person in their tragic diagnosis. Somebody somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, we're right there. When Birdie was in the hospital, I mean, people were amazing, just flooding in, bringing care packages, bringing groceries, cleaning our house, like just people were amazing. And I think just as as people and as a culture, we're really good at that. I think one thing that we haven't talked about enough and maybe are not good at is the long haul of grief when the miracle doesn't happen the way that is really obvious um, or clear. Yeah. I think that we're, we don't know how to grieve something for a long time ourselves. We know how to... to 
to be sad for a minute and then especially in the church, put all these scriptures on it of, uh, but but God is good all the time and I'm just going to trust God. And it's not that that's not true, but when we're shutting ourselves off from all these emotions of sadness and not inviting God into them, it's not, it's not a service to anybody, ourselves or the people around us. And so I think that has been something I've been learning for now three years into it of what it looks like to grieve honestly. Yeah. yeah. I think the thing you just pointed out was, really important because I think how many people that have gone through suffering feel the support in the moment. And then as it keeps going, people, you know, ask, I know, and, and no one does this on purpose, but they ask the question of how's Birdie doing? She's doing okay. Right? Like they, they almost have this leading yeah, question of they what want they hope answer. because, yeah. because it's hard for, and, and this is understandable. It's hard for people for a long period of time to have to sit in the discomfort of the fact that you're in discomfort. And I remember somebody, I can't remember who or where we heard it, but uh, it was a very helpful piece of advice. Um, you know, often when someone's grieving, we say, hey, let us know what we can do for you. You know, we put the responsibility on those who are suffering to have enough energy and enough ability to communicate their needs and be proactive about letting us know their needs when in that moment, there's not a proactive bone in your body to reach out to anybody and be like, oh, let me think about what I need because half the time I don't. Uh, so what somebody gave us advice was instead of, if you see somebody suffering, just take a minute, have some, like have a conversation, ask some thoughtful questions and then, and then basically say, Hey, I'm going to this is what I would like to do for you. Would that be helpful? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Thank you for saying that. That's um, a good response. This is what I'd like to do. Is this helpful? I'd like to start a meal train. I would like to clean your house once a week or pay for that. Um, it sounds like you need a little bit of rest. How can we make that happen? Uh, don't put that on them, you know? And I think when, when we experience that, when we realize that, first of all, we've stopped asking anybody to say, oh, well, hey, let us know what you need. Because honestly, they don't have, they don't know. This, it's not helpful in that yeah. space. And if you've gone through anything like this, you, you you know what we're talking about. But I thought that was a really, really helpful thing. And if, you, if you're listening to this and you have anybody in your life that is suffering, start asking questions, start getting to that place where you can just peer into their life and kind of uh, assume what they might need, ask them if it's helpful, and then just do it. That's so good. Uh, you're, you're teaching me, Brooke. Like, yes. I just the other day said that to somebody who's suffering. If there's anything I could do for you, let me know. Yeah. And it's and a, from what, the best yeah, point. Yeah, of course thing. my it's motives not, are yeah. right. But, you know, I was going to ask you um, what you might want to share. And I just heard two things right there. Maybe you've got some others because other people listening to this, they're going through trials too. And, and maybe some of them even more severe. Absolutely. And yeah. I heard you say, invite God into your grieving mm -hmm. process. Yes. So there, there's a key take away, invite yeah. God instead of running from him, invite him into the grieving process. Uh, you know, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way as we were. He was, mm -hmm. and he's, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. It says that he yeah. knows yeah, the aches and the pains. Yeah. He, he's a God of mercy. And he's full of compassion. So invite him into your story. The second thing you said is instead of asking, Hey, let me know if I could do anything for you. <laughs> ask God, what could I do for this person? Yeah. And then yes. say to them, hey, this is what I think I'd like to do. Is it yes, helpful? It That's is. good. Yeah. yeah. So for us, on the outside of the story, looking into two of the people, three of the people we love most in the world, um, Phil, why don't you tell kind of how that came to be for us and how God kind of led us and how we can help. Where were we when 
we got the news that maybe our granddaughter yeah. was oh, yeah. life I mean, we just uh, We just finished uh, an intentional parenting conference in Stockton, California. <laughs> what a great place. Which <laughs> is not the first city I would choose to live in in my home state. But, if you're from Stockton, we yeah, love you. Yeah, but Stockton's great. Stockton's There's a lot a great of great city. people there. But uh, anyway, so we had, we had left and gone up to the mountains where we used to go for vacation, where Diane's yeah. parents had retired. We're going to have a couple days, one of our favorite spots. Yes. And um, I love that place. Checked into this hotel and got the call from you guys that were on the way to the hospital. And yeah. so we looked at each other and said, we got to go. And we just got out of there. We just started driving towards wow. the nearest airport. We just thought we, if we can get as close as possible to the Sacramento airport, we can be there can. for first flight out in the morning. Which is what we did. And we got wow. home as fast as we could. And I think we took the older kids right off the bat. And oh, the, my early yeah. memories, they were at our house a lot. Brooks, they started coming to our <laughs> house after school because they yeah. didn't have to take their clothes off. And, yeah. They came into Pop's bad for you snacks. But anyway. <laughs> uh, you they know, had and, the time of their lives. Backstory so, to that, we had just moved back from LA um, one month before she got this diagnosis. And we had just so happened to move on the same street, two houses down across the street. From just so mom happened. and dad, she wrote a personal letter to the people that owned the rental. I know, begging I know, them to give but I just you. for me that was another like just seeing God just say. I felt like God just said, "I I saw you, yeah. like I knew exactly what you needed. I knew you needed to be in Portland. I know you needed to have your parents practically across the street." So that was just such a beautiful gift. So you guys and were... And he did. He, he intervened in that situation. Oh, and yeah. God oh. held that house for you, not knowing this was going to happen. It was amazing. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, one thing I, I do remember, because I think Elizabeth had called or something, called you guys. And I do remember how how much it meant to us yeah. that in the middle of a moment that you needed, you know, it was a sacrifice for you to do that. And I'm not trying to unnecessarily elevate but what what I do think is important about that that I think is helpful for those listening is, especially if you are a grandparent, and I'm speaking as someone who received this gift, it means so much to be present. Even yeah. if you, you know, there wasn't like a lot of practical help outside of maybe watching the kids a little bit here and there mm -hmm. at first that you could even do. But just your presence, just knowing yeah. that you're coming home because of what we were going through meant the world. And if you are listening, it means the world to your kids to be involved. It really does. It really... And I remember your parents did the same thing. They were bringing, we didn't have any clothes oh, for Birdie. She had all this stuff on her head and IVs. So they brought package after package after package of onesies that I could just slip up and on yeah, her. My and parents just are the king and snacks. queen of uh, They brought so many <laughs> snacks, snacks. They know what's up. Just were present with all the, the, the little things make a huge Practical difference. Practical things, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's decisions you have to make because the family is a unit that God designed in your we need each other, and God designed it that way. I remember, uh, I forget how far in we were, but Diane and I were scheduled to go to Zimbabwe, Africa, to teach our conference to uh, moms that were leading orphanages and pastors and their wives, and she said, I can't go. I can't be in Africa when my daughter is suffering and my granddaughter is suffering, and Tammy, our other daughter-in-law, was not feeling well, and so she couldn't go, and, uh, and so we had to postpone it, and um, and, and it was the right decision, the, right the decision that made sense in the moment for all of us, because when one family member suffers, just like the way the church is, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And, um, and yet our suffering needed to be different because we needed to not put the burden of our own 
grieving on the two of you. We needed to be the parents in the situation. And, and, and also to remind you how amazing you were being in the moment because you don't feel like that. You're falling apart every few hours. <laughs> I just yeah. remember falling apart. I remember that <laughs> yeah. very vividly. And, yeah, you so know, those... there's tension and messiness involved, but the fact that you actually rose up to this challenge and that you gave your daughter and your other kids at home the best care possible, that right there is like heroic. And I think of all the children all over the world who don't get that, who yeah. in their moment of, of great need don't have, for all sorts of reasons, don't have a parent who can show them the love of the Father that is a rescuing, sacrificing kind of love. And you not only showed that to Birdie, who was probably absorbing it just as a six-month-old in her, in her soul, but you're showing it to each of your children, to Scarlett and to Duke, to all of us around you, this is real love. And can you talk to us a little bit about the trauma? This was a trauma situation. Yeah. One day we thought she had an ear infection. The next day she's maybe not going to survive and is definitely hurt and damaged. How did that af affect Duke and Scarlett, the trauma of that whole thing? And you left on a Friday night and didn't come home for almost two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I think at first I just foresaw all the horrible ways that was going to affect them. And I saw all the holes in our parenting, everything we weren't able to give them, how present we weren't able to be. And we were intentional parents, and so we knew <laughs> yeah. what we were not doing. It was very clear what <laughs> exactly, we didn't do. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, and for for I'd say probably the first two years I felt that. Like, man, I'm just like, I can't be as present as I want to be with them. And um, and I would say there's, I, we've seen a mix of that it was in a lot of ways traumatizing to them. I remember our oldest, because um, we'd have to do hospital stays periodically just for longer EEGs. So they weren't traumatic stays, they were planned, but they're still hospital stays. And he would get really nervous and say, well, what day are you coming back? Because when you left that one time, you were gone and gone and gone. And I didn't know when you were coming back. And he's not one to worry or even say things like that. But just for him, there was kind of an unease of you might not come back. Um, and and I think for Scarlett, you know, she's always just wrestled with some fear. So just lots of um, just random fears and anxieties. And so there's definite, there was definitely that that came out that we had to learn how to talk to them about that, how to help them process what they were feeling. And we'd have kind of like a weekly check-in, like, all right, how are you doing with everything this week? Like, it, does it make you nervous when we go to the hospital every day? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Does, you know, and some weeks be like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, a lot of those weeks they would go to the hospital and they would get stickers and treats <laughs> and they, they all they knew, like all it. the nurses knew them by name and they had their like thing down. Uh -huh. so the hospital would visits, help check her blood pressure Oh, they were time. like, by the end yeah. of it, they were like, they were pros in that hospital. Yeah. But I think what I began to see was as much as I saw as this, oh, this is not fair to them. I started to see what God was already using it in their lives as yes. young kids. And I had another mom. And I think if you are going through anything like this with one of your kids or have a kid with special needs, find other moms who are way further ahead of you in this. Find ones that can relate to what your day-to-day -day is right now, but find, if you can, find a mom who loves Jesus who's way further 
than you are in this. And there was this one mom who I've known since I was little. She, I think she held me in the nursery when I was a baby. But um, Vicki Hughes, and she is just a wealth of wisdom and has gone through massive suffering. She's a Down syndrome daughter who's also had leukemia and Crohn's disease and all sorts of health problems. And um, and she wrote me this beautiful letter when we were in the hospital. And I share it with people all the time. And I read it about once a month because I need the reminder of kind of what you can expect, all the richness that you can expect to experience from something horrible like this happening. And all stuff on our marriage and everything she said has come true. But she said, you, to watch what it will do to your older kids and the compassion that will pour out of them and the empathy and the understanding and the love for others that will come out of them that really couldn't come any other way. in in that level in any other way. And that's what we've just had this privileged front row seat to watch. It's not yeah. something we've done. We have fumbled all so along yeah. the way. Like I so much anger started to trick out trickle out from me of just unprocessed emotion and grief and you know they've borne the brunt of a lot of that but to see just how god is using it in their own lives in a beautiful way and not just this traumatic horrible thing but to see that god really can i think that that scripture that comes to mind is that god works all things together for the good of those who love him and when i was growing up like i used to think well we we follow jesus we walk with jesus and he just if we do that then he turns all things into good if we just stick to his plan all things will be good and the longer i walk with jesus the more i realized that was that's not what that means but that that he can turn anything no matter how horrible or traumatic or not what you what he to. would have hoped for birdie yeah. or sickness or whatever and can turn it into something beautiful and only he can do that. Yeah. Like that is the power that he has, that he can turn it into something that is more beautiful than it was before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing in our kids. That's what we're seeing even in our marriage, how it's how it's strengthened our marriage in so many ways. And and what now to see how God's use is using Birdie in other people's lives around her is just a beautiful thing to get to watch and see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Romans eight twenty eight it it gets so misunderstood. It doesn't say all things are good. We live in yeah. a fallen world. Yeah, but God has a beautiful way of working all things together yes. for good. He brings beauty from ashes, mm. and yeah. He uses trials to refine and and to develop and develop us into. The, the kind of people. people he wants us to be, and we become yeah. more and more. And this, like Jesus. and this was something that was really interesting, because we we don't just have three kids; we have four kids. And uh, one of the things I think is important to mention is that we didn't accidentally have a fourth kid. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we get asked that a lot. Yeah, did you mean to do that? Like, <laughs> yes, we did. Um, you know, when we were praying, yeah, there was this moment. You know, I think we we had a vision. We had a conversation. And our conversations with having more kids have, have always kind of looked like this. Elizabeth being like, I just don't think we're done. And me being like, well, I like kids and I like you. And I think this is great. And I like kids, you know, and that, that's been the case until we got to four. And then I'm like, I think that's, I think yeah, we should we're done. be good. We're done. <laughs> but uh, it would start with Elizabeth saying, oh, I don't know if we're done. And Bertie's about, you know, a year and three months, you know, she's probably six months out of this whole thing. And I could not believe Elizabeth says, 
I don't know if we're done. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like if we <laughs> we're like in the midst of this whole thing and like, are you serious? And, and I knew it was, I, I really do sense it was the spirit of God because what ended up happening was we just started catching a vision of what we want our life to look like in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. And we realized that, you know, it's going to be really hard right now uh, if we have another little one, because the needs are just really high already. But we, we pictured Christmas, uh, 20 years from now when our youngest was 20 and we really felt like we wanted four kids and their spouses sitting around and not just three. And we sensed that there was another one there. And, and I remember had- you, Elizabeth, talking to me about it and you were, you, you guys were amazing. You were seeking counsel. Like you took oh, this yeah. seriously. We had to wrestle with it more than any of the other yeah. decisions. Yeah. Um, but that you saying that maybe this was for Birdie, that you yes. didn't yeah. want her to be kind of, can you explain that? I just feel like I had this sense, and I think it was all from the spirit because then as soon as I got pregnant, I was like, what the heck did we do? <laughs> but um, I just had this sense, you know, we have two kids that are like two and a half years apart, and then we had a four-year gap, and then Birdie. And it felt like if we ended there, it would have been totally fine, and we loved the three kids we had, um, and it was definitely full enough, but it felt like there was – the possibility that everything could become just about Birdie and everything she needed and that the older kids could feel that and maybe resent that. And it felt like it would be also helpful to Birdie, kind of two things, to have a buddy, to have somebody closer to her age that especially, I felt this kind of sense of especially if she is going to be different and maybe struggle socially or just have extra burdens for her to not feel alone and to have a sibling close in her age. Um, I just felt like that would be helpful and good. And I just felt kind of drawn to that, that maybe a fourth would just balance our family in a way that would be healthy for everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, and also help Birdie, you know, all the attention was going to her. So even help some of that dynamic of just that she would have to share some of the attention to. And um, so that was, I, I don't know where that thought process came from. I think it just was something that I felt. We, re- we realized. Yeah. And, it, and it's been really true um, for Birdie to, to need to not focus. For us, for one, to say we can't focus everything on her has actually been really good for her, um, which I know can sound counterintuitive to some parents, but it is really good to not give your kids the the crazy amount of attention to where they're uh, the only thing that happens because that can be destructive as well. Uh, but with when we have to focus on Sloan and say, hey, Bird, you need to get Sloan. Like you need to spend time with her or or like, hey, we, we can't focus on you right now um, has been great. But it's also been really cool to see now that because Birdie is still developing and slowly developing and behind developmentally and Sloan's on track or ahead, they're actually a lot more closer in their development. So yeah. it's really actually- They are buddies. They're like really they, buddies yeah. in a cool way. And And it's totally nuts. Like I know this sounds all great and idealistic, but it has been really, really hard (laughs) going to a fourth. It's been super hard. And and the the rhythm to kind of catch up to where Birdie is now today, like I said, she really is a walking miracle. If you saw her and you met her, you would just think she's a quirky three and a half year old who just kind of beats to her own drum. And she is. And there's all sorts of stuff. And there's she we're in therapy three days a week and she goes to a special education preschool two days a week. And the what it's taken to 
for her to be as high functioning as she is has been a whole team of therapists who have been amazing um, at just coaching us and helping us. And um, and she thinks she calls them her friends. So she just thinks they're all there to hang out with her. Um, She's extremely extroverted and outgoing. Um, so she re- she's doing amazing, but the pace of life has changed drastically to what it used to be. And this is in this time of my life, this is what I do, pouring into the kids and raising the kids and pouring into Birdie's development and growth. And all the kids come along for the ride and they come with us and they've all learned all the therapy tips as well. And we're all in it together. And if there's, if there's one thing that I was just thinking of the mom that's listening who obviously this is our story and our story. Some of you have much more challenging situations, much more unique. Um, and and the point isn't to compare suffering, suffering, suffering across the board. But if you could encourage any mom that's listening and, and she has a little one with special needs, yeah. what would you hope to tell? Like if you were sitting across from a mom and you just heart to heart over a cup of coffee, what would you hope to share with yeah. her? You know, I think the term special needs is a really broad one, and I think kids are getting diagnosed more often than ever before with things like ADHD and autism, no matter where they fall on the spectrum of that, and sensory processing disorder. And I think it's anything that disrupts the normal – I mean, there's all this normal kid stuff, right, and issues that come up, but – things that get it in the way of, of the normal day-to-day things. And so it, it can be a wide spectrum. And I know that Birdie is really high-functioning on that spectrum. And some of you moms listening, it's a much harder story and a much harder journey. And maybe your child's not high-functioning. But I think the spectrum is large. And so to any of you moms listening, I just want to acknowledge that your load is heavy. And we're in it with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a load that, you know, I watch as a husband. And dads, if you're listening, you know what this load in takes when when your spouse is care, you know, not only a mom, but a caretaker. Yeah, and I think that it can be easy, especially in our culture, to put the expectation on yourself that you're still supposed to function like all the other moms that you're supposed to be able to give your other kids everything that those other families are giving their kids, whether it's the time or the opportunities or whatever it may be. And I think for me, I'm still learning. I can sometimes get into a groove of of operating like I still have to do everything else and this. And I think it's important that we always just keep that perspective and remembering that we have an extra thing and we have to be able to tailor our lives around that to make space for that and not operate like we're still supposed to be able to do everything. So I think that's the first thing I would say is just know that your load is heavy and if there's anybody else around you who can help just shoulder that load with you, who understands what it's like to have that extra load, I think that's huge. You need somebody in it with you. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that's been really helpful to me that uh, it's actually one of Birdie's therapists she had for a short period of time who I don't even think was a believer, but she just said something that 
I feel like was so from the spirit when I needed to hear it. Birdie was about two and I was just questioning how how do I discipline her? Like she's got all these normal two-year-old behaviors are coming out, but we've got all these extra factors and she's overwhelmed for different reasons. And, and I, you know, I know all this intentional parenting stuff and my parents literally wrote the book and I'm trying to figure out how to apply it to our situation that is different. And it's diff- it was different than my other two older kids when they were toddlers. And I just felt confused and I was kind of asking her from a sensory perspective, like, how do I discipline things when she's overwhelmed because something's too loud? And this therapist said, you need to do exactly what you did with your older kids. And I was kind of taken aback by that. And then I felt like I knew what she was saying was right. And she said, Birdie is going to hit for very different reasons than your other two-year-olds hit. She may be totally overwhelmed. She may be experiencing something in her body that feels so foreign because something was too loud or her clothes felt awkward or, but she still has to learn self-control. And for me, that's just been something that I've just had to continually ask the spirit of how do I teach and train a child whose brain really does work differently, but it's still important for them to learn all these things about God, to learn all these these things about relationships with others. And I think it's a unique thing we have to train our kids whose who's brains work differently or or are different, but we still have to teach them and train them. And so I think you just have to pray for a ton of wisdom. Yeah. Um, and one more thing, I know we we need to wrap up, but I think for me, a lifeline in all of this for years has been just reading the book of Psalms over and over again. When I get frustrated that grieving is not happening as fast as I would like, or it feels like I'm back into having to re-grieve something. When I read Psalms, I just find so much comfort at how honest they are and how much God has to say. I love Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34 is kind of like my go-to, but it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I just think that is so much what we've experienced through all of this is there are, there are days when I still feel brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. And God is so near in those days. So you moms who are feeling that, just remember that God is near in the midst of that, not just on the days that feel better and you feel stronger, but when you feel crushed, he is just as present, if not more so. Yeah, that's beautiful, honey. One. One final thing I would just love to share. If you're a dad out there, um, I think leading your family um, in acceptance is really important. Um, Not trying to fight that your world got turned upside down. I think it was really easy. We were on the trajectory to be, to plant a church and our two places were Seattle or New York, (laughs) Which now at this point sounds literally insane. <laughs> I mean, like the that sounds like the dumbest thing I could do with my entire life at this point because of of our situation. But this changed our trajectory, and 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 for me as a pastor, as a leader, as a person who cares uh, about the people of God and cares about my family, we the re- one of the main reasons we we just decided this can't happen right now is primarily. Uh, because of the needs of our family. And I think the thing that I realized more and more 
you know, I had to grieve that process. I had to grieve the process that there were some dreams I had that needed to now change for my family. And I, I can say on the other side of that, that I am so thankful that God gave us the gift of birdie and gave us the gift of this, this child who does need more attention because it actually grounds me in things that matter. It grounds me in stuff that is really important to God in the kingdom. Um, and I realized that he's given me a gift by not answering those prayers of whether it's direct healing or, or planting a church in this place at this time. It was like, it was actually a huge gift. And now to be where we're at, we have this little gift, this ball of joy who loves horses, by the way, <laughs> <Absolutely> <laughs> loves horses, loves horses um, which I love. And so, yeah, that was, I just wanted to share that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add one more thing to that acceptance thing. I remember sitting for months and months and months sitting in the waiting room of all these therapy places and watching the moms with kids with severe special needs. And they had a joy that was just palpable. I mean, just the way that they enjoy their kids and celebrate their kids, I would watch it and I just felt like I want that. And yet I felt like I was over here just grieving and wrestling through all these unanswered questions of what her life was going to be like. And I just wanted to get, I kept, I would talk to Brooke about it all the time. I would talk to mentors about it. I just want to get to that place where I just celebrate everything she can do and I don't focus on everything she can't. And I felt for a while, just I just wrestled with that. I was mad at myself that I couldn't get there faster. And I would say now three years in, I feel like I'm starting to enter into what acceptance and rejoicing and joy and feeling that more than I feel sadness or seeing the things that are a struggle for her. And that that has taken three years and I feel like I'm just at the beginning of the process. So with, I think acceptance is huge, but I think be patient with yourself in the process of acceptance mm. because it does not happen in a week or That's a month good. or even yeah. always a year. Like it's a mm -hmm. process that God is using that whole process of getting there is all important. You can't fake acceptance. It's yeah. a deep yeah. down in your soul you are genuinely thankful for the gifts and not the things that aren't there. Wow. Do you remember I know. what you told me when you came home from a, the developmental uh, pediatrician? Is that what it's called? Uh -huh. You know, so in the waiting room, you said, we're all these mothers and their children are severely, most of them, disabled yeah. in some way. Um, and you said, Mom, you have to come see. These are the yeah. most beautiful women. I've ever seen. Yeah. And that really corresponds well with um, Romans chapter 5. And, you know, we all know this, but this is in the Passion Translation that seems so beautiful. Even in times of trouble, we have a joyful confidence, knowing that our pressures will develop in us. Development takes time. Mm -hmm. Develop in us patient endurance. Mm -hmm. And patient endurance will refine our character. And proven character leads us back to hope. And this hope is not a disappointing fantasy because we can now experience the endless love of God cascading into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Wow. That's it right there. Yeah, you know, uh, and when I listen to my wife do a teaching, one of them she does 
She says, God is with you in the middle of your mess. Yeah. And I think that's what people have heard, how God has been with you. And and uh, you just quoted your go-to Psalm 34. And the very next verse after your verse is, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, delivers him out of them all. We started with James 1, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And uh, it's been a... It's it's been heartbreaking and heart aching for us to walk with you through this, and yet to see the beauty of the deep faith that God's developed in you. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, when you go home tonight, if you're listening, squeeze your little ones tighter, pray for them. And Phil, I was just thinking it would be so special if could you just close out this podcast with praying over the families that are listening, the moms specifically with special needs, just for strength and energy and capacity of the spirit absolutely yeah father we thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted you are always near to the brokenhearted in a beautiful and special way and and lord when we need more grace you give more grace because your supply of grace is inexhaustible the the well runs so deep that we can never get to a point to where we need more of you and it's and, and you're not available. So I just thank you that you're with every parent listening to this right now, whether they're in the dark days of trying to figure it out or whether they're they're emerging from the cloud and into a little bit more light. I just pray that that they would know in this moment that you will never leave them or forsake them and you are with them and they can say the Lord Yahweh, the creator of the heavens of the earth, he is my helper. And I will not be afraid because my hope is in him. My joy is in him. He is the solid rock that's holding me up. And Lord, would you do that? Would you continue to undergird every person going through a trial right now? And may they run to you, not away from you, because you are the one whose arms are the everlasting arms. And you hold the world in your hands and you can hold them up. And so thank you that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If this podcast has blessed you in any way, here's a few ways that you can partner with us in this ministry. First is to give. Intentional Parents is a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous giving of our partners. So please head over to our website, intentionalparents.org slash give, if you would like to become one of our partners through giving. Second is to share it. If this has at all been helpful to you, we encourage you to share it with your friends, your family, and those that you know would be blessed by it. Third is to follow us on social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us on Instagram at intentional underscore parents. And lastly, if you would head over to iTunes, if you enjoyed today's episode and leave a review on iTunes, this helps us bring more hope, help, and